You may be seated. Take your copy of God's Word, please. We'll be turning to Acts, the first chapter. We'll end up in Acts chapter 2. And I uh, hope you have one of those sermon guides uh, handy. We'll be using that throughout the message today. And while you're finding uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2, I want to um, ask you to consider something. I don't want you to answer out loud or tell anybody around you. I want you to think about and answer this in your own mind. And I want you to consider this. When you hear the word church, when you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? I don't answer out loud, but in your own heart and life there. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? Now, I think many people, when they hear the word church, they think of a building and they may talk like this. Well, I go to church at Red Hill over on Red Hill, Mount Vernon Road in Polkton, or I grew up in such and such church over wherever they think of a building. And then others, when they hear the word church, they may think of a denomination like the Lutheran Church or the Methodist Church. She's been a member of the Methodist Church all of her life. Um, The key, beloved, is to understand what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the church. And I go ahead and tell you that it's not talking about a building. It's not talking about a brick or wooden structure. And it's also not talking about a denomination when the Bible speaks of church. You might be thinking, well, preacher, why all of this talk on the church and uh, this basic stuff here? Well, this is the second message in a series of messages that we have uh, begun called Church Matters. And we're going back to God's word, the Bible, to see why the church matters, why it's important that we are here today and why it's important that we do what we do. And we're also taking Red Hill Baptist Church and we're holding up to the word of God and we're seeing uh, if we're in line with his word and his will. And last week, those who were here, many of us, we knelt and we literally gave this church Back to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we literally did that. Uh, we, we considered what he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he says, I will build my church. Uh, we looked in Ephesians chapter 5 of how he gave himself for the church and how he sacrificed for the church. And it belongs to him. He's the head of the church. He's the master. He's the savior. And so we literally, we knelt together as a congregation. The majority, I think, here knelt together and we gave the church back to him. And in that that uh, that time of prayer, we asked the Lord to confirm and strengthen what we're doing right, uh, what we're what, what we're already doing. And, and we ask him to correct anything that we're we're doing, but not doing it quite right. If there's any tweaks or adjustments that need to be made, we ask him to do that. And then we took a very dangerous step together. Uh, We ask him to change anything that he wants to change. And it really boils down to his changing us. Changing us personally. So the question today is, what is the church? What is the church? If it's not a building, and if it's not a denomination, what is the church? What is the Bible talking about when it mentions the church? And to answer that question, we're going to go back to the beginning of the church And you'll find it there in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to set the stage uh, beginning in Acts chapter 1. 
And in Acts chapter 2, we have uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And to kind of set the stage for you, back up to Acts chapter 1. And I want to consider what the Lord Jesus said to them there. Uh, This is the resurrected Lord Jesus. He's already come back from the grave. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then if you drop down to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this to them. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we see the Lord Jesus speaks there before his ascension, before he returns. Now, let's go to Acts chapter two. We know what Jesus said. You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power. Now, let's come to Acts chapter two, beginning at verse one. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Can you kind of get the setting in your mind? There they are. There are people from all over the place there, different languages. uh, And all of a sudden, the sound of a mighty rushing wind comes in and they begin to speak in these various languages. And every man there hears in his own language. And they're obviously confused. They're confounded, just as we would be. Now drop down, verse 13. Here's how some of them interpreted what was going on. Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. These people are drunk. Now let me just be honest with you for a moment. Now, I've seen drunk people, and uh, they don't uh, act right, really, many times. But I've never seen one that broke out in languages they didn't know. Have you? Uh, Maybe a language you can't understand, but not a little language. And and here we have them speaking, uttering literal languages that men hear and understand. And Peter begins to correct the thought. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Drop down to verse 40. You have his sermon going, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfast in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord of the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Beloved, here you have the birth 
of the church. The birth of the church. Now, I'm going to encourage you to really stick with me today. I want you to think. Uh, don't drift off. Don't wander off. But stay with me here in the text. Just stay with me. I grab the sermon guide and take some notes and really focus with me. You see, there are various opinions on when the church started. Some say, well, the church started way back with Adam and Eve. That's when the church started. Others said, no, the church started with uh, Abraham. When God called Abraham, that was the beginning of the church. And then others say, no, well, the church began with Jesus when he was upon the earth. That's when the church began. And others say, no, the church did not begin till later with the Apostle Paul. And then there are those who said, no, the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And beloved, that is where the church began. Right here on the day of Pentecost. I say, well, preacher, how do we know that this is the birth of the church? Let me give you three things in particular from uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary here. We know the church began on the day of Pentecost in, in various ways. Number one. Because of what Jesus Christ himself said that we studied last week in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He said, I will build my church. You notice that's future tense. I will build it. I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. Furthermore, we learn from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, that the church was founded upon the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. And that could not have taken place until this point. He told them, you wait, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's already gone to the cross. He's already been crucified. He's already been buried. He's already risen again. And so we know Ephesians 1, 50 through 23 tells us that it could not have happened until his death, resurrection and ascension. And, and finally, Ephesians 2, 13. And I'll put these references down for you to read later. There could not be the church until it was fully purchased with Christ's blood. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. So we understand the birth of the church took place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now, when the Bible speaks of the church, it's not talking about a brick building like ours. It's not talking about a denomination. It speaks of it in regards to the universal church, to a group of local churches, and to a specific local church. So we really could boil it down to two ways the Bible speaks of the church. Are you with me? The universal church... And the local church. And local church might be a group of local churches or it might be a local churches in a region or it may be a specific local church. The Greek word that we find translated church in our New Testament is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Say that with me. Ekklesia. See, you're speaking Greek. Ekklesia. John Hammond says it's found 114 times in the New Testament. 114 times. And of those, 109 refer to the New Testament church. So we've got to define our terms. So stay with me. First of all, the universal church. What is that? Well, all believers, everybody who has trusted Christ from the day of Pentecost until the rapture takes place are a part of the universal church, sometimes called the invisible church, sometimes called the church with a capital C. Examples are found in Ephesians 5, 23 through 27. Ephesians 3, 21. Listen to him. Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Listen to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So obviously more than just one little specific church, the universal church. 
Every believer of every tribe, tongue, nation, whoever trusts Jesus Christ becomes a part of the universal church. But then you have the local church. And the local church is a local assembly of believers like what we have here, sometimes referred to as the visible church. I can see everybody and I hope you can see it too. We're, we're visible here together. Or the church with a lowercase c. We see examples of this when we look at the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and verse uh, chapter three. We looked at the church of Laodicea last week and we see a local church there. So we have big C and little C. The big C. This is the universal church. This is everybody who's ever been saved from Pentecost until the rapture. So everybody who's saved is a part of the universal church, the, the body of Christ. And then we have the local church, little sick. And you know what? The majority of times when the Bible speaks of the church, you know which one it's talking about? The local church. Did you realize that? The local church. And the Bible gives many metaphors and pictures of the church. We don't have time to look at all of them, but it talks about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the temple of God, the priesthood, the flock, the vine and the branches. And all those could be separate messages and even separate series as we were to study out those intricacies. But, but the Bible is very clear when it's talking about the church. So here's the question. What is the church? We know the Bible talks about it in two senses. The universal church, all believers, those already in heaven, those yet to be saved up until the time of the rapture, everybody, and then the local church. So when you take all of Scripture, how do we best answer that question, what is the church? That's a broad topic. Well, if you'll turn over, not you personally, but your page, you'll turn your page over, you have there... Uh, a portion of our doctrinal statement called the Baptist Faith and Message. It's Article 6 called The Church. And some very wise scholarly Christians took the Bible's teachings and they summarized for us in very plain, understandable terms exactly what the church is. By the way, we're going to read this together and I'm going to ask you to read it with me out loud. So make sure you've got it handy. There is one word I want to point out that we don't use a lot, I don't think. And that second part there, second sentence, or first sentence, second line, the word autonomous. We don't throw that around a lot, do we? You don't say, well, I'm feeling real autonomous today. We don't use that very often. You say, what does that mean? Well, autonomous is the idea that nobody dictates to us as a local New Testament church what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we voluntarily work with the Southern Baptist Convention. They don't dictate to us what we do. We voluntarily work with the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. We voluntarily work with the Anson Baptist Association. They're not telling, uh, telling us what to do. We operate in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're autonomous. This church owns its own building. It calls its own pastor. It sets out its own agenda under the Lordship of Christ. We're autonomous. That's what that means. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to read this out loud together. And I want you to think about it as we read it. And I think it's a wonderful definition of what the church is. So do you have your copy of it? Are you ready to read aloud together in unison? We'll do our best to stay together. Okay. Recognize the periods and the commas. And we'll read it together. You ready? 
Here we go. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights and privileges invested in them by his word and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, The office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That was wonderful. Wonderful. That's what a church is. That's a big definition. From Scripture. Now I want to go back to Acts chapter 2 and I want to highlight a couple of things of utmost importance when it comes to the church. We've only got time to cover one today. Then we'll add to that. This is part one. Okay? We'll add to it next time I speak. We'll speak about part two. But I want to show you very plainly from this passage this very important truth. Hear me and hear me well. The church is made up of believers. The church is made up of believers. I'm talking about both senses. The universal church, the body of Christ, is made up of believers. But also the New Testament local church is made up of believers. Now go back to Acts chapter 2 and find verse 40. Acts chapter 2 verse 40. The Bible says, Peter speaking here, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. By the way, you think we're living in dark days and rough days? Look at where they were living. He called it a perverse generation. He said, be saved from it. Notice verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word. Drop down to verse 47. Notice the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being what? Being saved. You see, in order to be a member of the church, you must be saved. And when a person is saved, when they turn from their sin to Jesus Christ, they're placed in church, the church, big C, the body of Christ, they become part of the bride of Christ. That person becomes a member of the church, big C. But the scripture is clear. God wants that member to also become a member of the local church, little c. And we believe in regenerate church membership. That is, the church is made up of saved people only. But there's a problem. I think it was old J. Vernon McGee who said that there are believers and there are make-believers. There are those who profess Jesus Christ, but do not possess him. There are people on the church rolls who are not saved. Now, beloved, that's tragic. 
That's tragic for several reasons. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. If you don't get anything else, do get this. No one is saved by being a member of the local church. Nobody's saved being a member of a local church. You're saved as you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know in obedience to Christ, a saved person is baptized and identifies with a local church. Everyone's saved by grace through faith. But that being the case, imagine the harm that's done when a person who is not saved, they don't know Jesus. They're baptized and they join a church. Harm is done to that person. You know why? Because many times it gives them a false assurance. In other words, they think, well, I'm fine with God. Why? Because I'm baptized and I'm a member of the church. But, beloved, nobody's saved by being baptized in water. Nobody's saved by becoming a member of a local church. You're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then baptism and church membership in a local church are steps of obedience. And so imagine the false assurance of someone who is not saved, never been born again, never been convicted by the Holy Spirit to the point of conversion. They just join the church. And they get baptized. False assurance. Harm is done to that person, but it doesn't stop there. Trey Morgan's a pastor in Texas. He wrote this. Listen, I have a friend that's not a Christian, but she's very curious about my faith, my beliefs in Christianity. She didn't grow up in any religion or church and knows very little about the Bible. By the way, we're surrounded by people like that. You may forget that, but we are. If you are blessed to be brought up in church, thank God. But there are many who don't know the Bible and are not blessed in that regard as you are. She often asks me questions about Christianity that are very simple, honest, and sometimes downright painful. Sometimes her questions are very childlike, like, does it bother God when I curse? And, and why is it wrong for me to hate someone? But it was her last question that she asked me that really set me back on my heels. She was totally serious when she said, she asked, listen, why is it that the Christians at my workplace can be dishonest, sleep with someone in the office that's not their spouse, ask me to get drunk with them at a party on Saturday, and then invite me to go to church with them on Sunday morning? Something about all that doesn't seem right. Trey says, honestly, I was floored. Her simple yet serious question was a slap in the face to the lifestyle of Christianity that Jesus taught and wants me to live. Her question was 100% serious. She wasn't trying to bash what I believe or rub my nose at professing Christians' inconsistencies. She just didn't understand it and wanted to know none of it made sense to her. And honestly, none of it makes sense to me either. I did my best to answer her, but it frustrated me knowing that all my words... Won't have near the impact on her that her co-workers' actions will. Now I want you to hear me, beloved. We cannot expect lost church members to live like saved people. If they're a church member and they're still lost, they're going to more than likely live a lost lifestyle. They may play the game some, especially on Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever. And they may put on a good show, but if, if behind the scenes and at work and everywhere else, they're busy living just like the world. 
Imagine the harm that does to the body of Christ, the testimony of Christ. That's why we take the time to sit down with people prior to baptism, prior to church membership. And we talk about sin and we talk about the gospel and we talk about faith in Christ. We talk about what all these things mean. We don't want anybody operating on a false assurance. We don't want anybody harming the name of Christ. We don't want names on a church roll just to say, hey, we got the largest church around. What good is that, beloved, if it's still with lost people destined for hell? And so we're very careful about this. You see, regenerate church membership impacts so much when it comes to the church. In fact, in my study this past week, I was amazed at just how much it impacts. I was amazed. We don't have time to fully develop these, but but John Hammett points out that a regenerate church membership is the basis for our congregational church government. We're autonomous. We operate under democratic processes. We vote on things. We should be doing it under the lordship of Christ. A regenerate church membership means that Christ is Lord of each person. And so we, under the lordship of Christ, we exercise our democratic processes. It also impacts... <clears throat> and reflected and, and preserved in the Baptist practice of closed communion. And also as a prerequisite for church discipline. These things are taught in the Bible. And if we're not regenerate, if we are not saved as a church body, how can we do these things for God's honor and glory? I want you to understand this is not a small matter. This is not something that's just of little consequence. Eternity is at stake for that individual. Eternity is at stake if they're operating on false assurance, but also the purity and the ministry of the church is at stake. Now, listen, I want to ask everybody here today, whether you're a church member here or a church member somewhere else or a church member nowhere. Just set that aside for a moment. I want to ask everybody here this question. Are you saved? You say saved from what? Safe from your sin, safe from yourself, safe from hell. See, the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we failed in one point and disobeying God, we're guilty of all. We're condemned. We're sinners. We're in need of a Savior. And the Bible is very clear that God in his love sent the Lord Jesus Christ. He came as a babe born to the Virgin Mary. He grew up and lived a sinless, perfect life. And then he voluntarily went to the cross and died, shed his precious blood, was buried and rose again victorious. And he did that because he loved you and me. He did that because he desires to have a relationship with us. He desires to save us. And the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not by our good works. It's not I hope my good outweighs my bad. We come as bad, guilty sinners and we cry out to God for mercy. In the name of Jesus. And the Bible says for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I ask you today. Whoever you are, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior?
I didn't ask you, are you baptized? I didn't ask you, are you a member of the church? I didn't ask you for any of that. I'm asking, have you ever turned from your sin to Jesus Christ? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is your Savior and heaven is your home? If not, I want to give you an opportunity today to respond in faith. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to simply close in a prayer and sing a closing hymn before we have our baptism time. Now, I'm going to invite you as we're singing that closing hymn to come and meet me here. Say, so what will happen, preacher? I'll place you with someone who will take a Bible and sit down with you and lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very simple. And so I wonder today, do you need to be saved? Do you need to be saved? Church matters. We know that. Regenerate church membership is important. We know that. But listen, beloved, your soul matters. You need to be saved. You need to turn from your sin to Christ. Some invite you to do that today. You say, well, preacher, I'm already a member of the church. I've already been, I'm going to be embarrassed. Friend, better to be embarrassed than burn an eternity in hell. Step out today. Let somebody help you. And lead you to Christ. Would you come today? See, the church is made up of believers. Believers. Are you a believer today? Are you in the body of Christ? Big C. Are you in the church today? Father, do that that only you can do. I've stood as your messenger today to declare your gospel. Only your Holy Spirit can convict and bring about conversion to life. I pray for those right now that you're dealing with. That you give them courage to step out from where they are and come and allow somebody to take a Bible and lead them to Christ. I pray for any today that are operating under a false assurance. Looking at their good works or their church membership or their baptism. Help to see that all of that means nothing. If they don't know Jesus. So Father do a work. For your honor. And your glory. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is 136. When we start singing I'm going to invite those who are being baptized to step back. And begin preparing for that. I'll join you in just a moment or two. Right now we're doing business with God. If you're here today and don't know Jesus, I'd invite you to come. We're not here to embarrass you. We're not here to call you out. We want to help you to death. As we begin singing, you want to know Jesus. Would you come to me? 136, are you washed with the blood of the Lord? That's the key. 136, as you begin singing, those being baptized, and then you dismiss, and we'll prepare, and the altar goes for everybody else. 136, let's stand.
first song we're going to sing is I'm Bound for That City. And we would like to dedicate that to all these young men and two young ladies that's been saved and accepted Jesus Christ. And it is a good day in Red Hill Baptist Church. Amen. Amen.
baptized and accepted Jesus Christ. That's been over 20 years ago. And you know, I still remember the people that influenced my life and led me to accept Jesus Christ. My Sunday school teachers, our pastor, and we have people here at Red Hill that we want to dedicate this song to. Our pastor, of course, our Sunday school teachers, our uh, teen kids, and parents, all those that had an influence on these young folks. This Jesus is coming soon.
spend time with people at some of the greatest moments of their life and also some of the lowest moments. And uh, if you would ask what some of my favorite things about being a pastor, uh, what they would be, this ranks right up there at the top. Uh, to be allowed to be a part of someone's life, to baptize them, and to see them obey Christ. And so we're going to baptize at this time. also want to recognize we have a lot of guests. So as um, the one you're here to see today comes, I'll, I have the guests and family and different ones stand. I want to recognize you today before we baptize each one. So we'll go ahead and get started with baptism. <laughs>
Thomas Lamb the Fourth was kind of like, whoa. <laughs> there you go. You okay? All right. Let's have uh, Thomas's family and friends stand up, please. We welcome you. God bless you. God bless you. Thomas, are you following the Lord in believers' baptism today because you know that you've received him as your Lord and Savior? Then I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, turn your arms. Bury the light of the Bury the light of his death. Raise the light of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Today, we didn't know we were going to have anybody beyond us here, but my mother and my aunt and uncle made the trip over surprise us. So, would you guys stand up, please? And uh, they're here today. And um, it's always a joy um, when you, as a minister, get to see your own family follow the Lord in, in uh, salvation and in baptism membership. Gideon, are you coming today to obey the Lord in believer's baptism because you know that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bury the likeness of his death, raise the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. (laughs) 